because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. A, an issue I've become really interested in over the last year is the issue of how the anti-fossil fuel movement threatens freedom, uh, in large part by threatening the security of free countries. Uh, if you look at the anti-fossil fuel movement around the world, the countries that tend to be following it are the freer countries, and the countries that are ignoring it, namely China and Russia, tend to be the unfree countries. Now, recently I saw a really great video about the situation in China uh, by a guy named John Robson, who's the executive director of Climate Discussion Nexus. Uh, I'll, I'll tell John once he gets on the story of how I discovered him, but I became impressed with him and his work a couple of years ago. And so I reached out to him and asked him if he'd want to come on the show. And it turns out he had, I think, read The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, or at least has it on his bookshelf. So he generously agreed to come on. So John, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Great to, great to have you. So I'll just quickly tell you, I, I discovered you, I, I'm always happy to discover new people who are advocating for freedom in this field because it's so rare, but I feel like, I always feel like, oh, I must've found out about all of them. But I, about a year or two ago, I saw this great video you did on the 97% consensus. And I know enough about that issue to know the nuances of it. And I was just shocked in a positive way about how accurate it was. I mean, you really were familiar with the things. It was the best treatment of the issue I'd ever seen, uh, including better than my treatments of it. And I'm wondering, how did you get into this issue? And then what do you think explains the level of rigor that you use with, used with that issue and that you use with other issues? I suppose how a person gets into any issue is always a bit of a complicated story. I mean, I am, as people will periodically discover and taunt me with, I'm actually a historian by training. And uh, I was a hawk before I was a free marketeer. And uh, I've worked in think tanks and I had was in journalism. When the climate issue came up rather suddenly and quite powerfully, and it seemed in certain undesirable ways to be familiar to me. The same kinds of things were going on, including that it went almost overnight from something nobody would heard of to something you weren't allowed to ask questions about. So I started asking questions. And being a historian, one of the first questions I asked myself is, does this theory about CO2 driving temperature going forward fit with what we know about the past? And I didn't think it did. And then, of course, what happened is I was told, oh, yeah, but, you know, 90% of climate scientists think so. And I thought to myself, gee, that's an interesting claim. I mean, there are a lot of climate scientists in the world. That's an imprecise term, but there are a lot of disciplines involved in trying to understand climate. Climate is a horrendously complicated subject, as a matter of fact. You know, everybody from geologists to atmospheric physicists. And surveying people is a rather tricky thing to do. I thought, who on earth has surveyed all these people? Who went out and found all the scientists and wrote them a letter and said, dear scientist, is global warming man-made dangerous and urgent? And uh, fortunately, you know, the, the climate discussion next isn't just me. I have some, uh, some colleagues who are very intelligent and well-informed people. And so we decided it was really time to take a hard look at this. And I'd done this in my 2017 documentary. I'd, I'd already had a pretty good look at it. And uh, I think among people who are historians by training, I probably had a better math background than a fair number of them. So I, I was suspicious of this statistical methodology and I'd looked into uh, other people had done some analyses and I thought we better confront this squarely because when you try to debate man-made climate change, the first thing you get told is shut up, you're not a climate scientist. And the second thing you get told is shut up, 97% of climate scientists are agreed. 
And this is often, been, in fact, almost always being said by people who aren't climate scientists themselves and didn't really do terribly well in statistics in high school math. But you still need to go through it and say, no, don't be intimidated by this claim. It's just not true. Yeah, I mean, I like how when you're maybe the historian gives you the historian background gives you this perspective. But like when you're hearing a claim, you're thinking about what would it actually take to establish such a claim? And I don't think most people who hear that claim think about it, I think in part because they have no kind of training that's at all relevant to the issue. It's just sort of, it's more like a religious thing. It's like, oh, some way the, the body of scientists just revealed themselves to us. And so now we magically know it's 97% and we don't need to know exactly what they said. It's just like global warming is bad, get rid of fossil fuels, uh, the end. And it does have a slightly religious tinge in that a whole lot of journalists will, will print some story about some fairly radical claim about climate change, but the headline will say, the world will end soon unless we repent, scientists say. And that is this kind of magic phrase, like waving incense at someone that, that chases away their doubts and purifies them. And it's often interesting to look down through the article and try and see what the scientists really said and who the scientists are and why they asked these scientists and not some other scientists. But again, one of the things that's funny about this is that a, most of the journalists covering this stuff have no background in science at all. There was one news story that said, oh, you know, Will Happer was meant to join this White House uh, task force on climate change, but he's not a climate scientist. I mean, Will Happer is an atmospheric physicist. And then so I looked up the people who were dismissing him and they had, you know, degrees in journalism and English and stuff. And I thought, how how can people like this think they know so much about climate science? And this is another of the things that made me uneasy about the issue from the beginning is the way that people suddenly got religion about it that they suddenly were certain that all right-thinking people thought this. Because generally when you're told that all right-thinking people think something, it's not true and it's a dangerous mistake. And again, the historian in me, I mean, I cut my teeth on the Cold War. So I have a fairly sensitive antennae to certain kinds of bullying, like the peace movement, you know, saying, oh, well, if you don't believe we should disarm, you must want war. And whenever you hear that kind of language, you ought to be very suspicious of the mental processes behind it. I'm curious, you know, with your perspective as a historian, and maybe you, I, I can't tell whether you're implying this with what you said at the beginning, whether you observe that, you know, the solutions that they have to this problem seem an awful lot like their solutions to every problem or what they always wanted to do in the first place in terms of have extensive control over our lives. Was that something that occurred to you or am I just reading that into it. That was definitely part of it. Again, there, there's a, there were a number of things that fed into it. And one of them was this very straightforward historical question, does the evidence suggest that CO2 has driven temperature in the past? But another one was that, that you know, the, the, the left is kind of like this comedian uh, whose routine is stale and not very funny. And although there's a bunch of different setups, there's only one punchline, the best must seize control in this crisis. And whenever you see people producing this solution, you have to think to yourself, how many times in the past has this been suggested and how often was it really a good idea? And uh, so that was another of the things that just got me thinking we really better uh, take this thing apart and look at the component pieces because the sort of people who are saying this are the sort of people who've said it and been wrong a whole lot of times in the past. And that's not a good sign. I mean, one of the things about history, I once had a professor who, though he was not in favor of imperialism by any stretch, he called history the imperialist discipline because we can take 
bits and pieces of methodology from any field where it seems to be working. And so one of the things that, you know, geologists, in my view, are historians, they're historians of rocks, and uh, but also historians of ideas, and historians of bad ideas, and of the kind of persistent uh, ideological commitments that we've seen in the West that have proved to be misguided and dangerous over and over again. And when you see them again, uh, you use the past as a guide to the future. There's probably something wrong here. Yeah, one other thing I've noticed, uh, I've noticed, you know, the solutions are these, I mean, it, you know, now it's bordering on totalitarian types of solutions, but the solution is always the government uh, needs to control everything for the common good. Uh, you, there's also, as you, you mentioned, this phenomenon of they, you know, there's these, there's always some catastrophe that industrial civilization is causing. And I talk about this in chapter one of the moral case for fossil fuels. And I talk about it even more in my next book on fossil fuels. And I call them now the designated experts. Like if you look at the track record of our designated experts on environmental issues, it's hard to think of a worse track record that anyone could ever have. I mean, it's like catastrophic resource depletion, catastrophic pollution, catastrophic global cooling, catastrophic global warming. And one thing I find particularly fascinating is just the confidence with which the knowledge institutions like the New York Times relay these things as if they're certain. So I was just reading one today uh, that I think I quoted in a moral case about in 1969, you know, the New York Times saying, we've had food problems in the past, but experts assure us that these problems are worse than ever. And this is when there are 3.6 billion people in the world, and now they're almost 8 billion and we're better fed. Like, you know, what's, what's your sense of why these designated experts keep, they keep being the designated experts, they keep becoming more and more prominent, even as their track record gets worse? Well, the kind of things historians find funny, it reminds me of something someone once said of Philip II of Spain, that no experience of the failure of his policies and practice could undermine his confidence in their fundamental excellence. And the New York Times has this kind of attitude that people who have enormous amounts of compassion and are impatient with practical difficulties really ought to be given all the power in order that we can overcome whatever the crise du jour might happen to be. And so naturally capitalism has got to go because it's based on free choice and spontaneous order. And what we really need is the rule of experts who are made wise primarily by the size of their hearts, not by their knowledge of what has worked in the past. And they, they are undaunted by the fact, I mean, if you look at the New York Times, for instance, on, uh, on the Cold War and on the peace movement and so on, they were terribly wrong over and over again. But I think here, if people haven't read Thomas Sowell's book, A Conflict of Visions, I think it's well worth doing it. It's a nice short book for, for our busy uh, lives. But he talks about the fundamental, almost intellectual instincts that underlie conservatism versus liberalism. And one of them is that conservatives are very concerned about what has worked in the past, partly because they are convinced that all life is six to five against, as Damon Runyon once put it, that uh, peace and plenty are unusual things and that war and suffering and scarcity are normal. Whereas people, liberals tend to have this instinct that tells them, no, no, it's natural for things to go well. And if things are going badly, some evil person is making them go badly. And if that's how you approach public policy, uh, in a way, the left talks a lot about compassion, but they're always looking out for the villains who are messing everything up. They are far more likely to attribute problems to malice than to stupidity, whereas conservatives are more likely to say what we have here is a case of mass confusion. Uh, and 
that's why conservatives, I think, trust decentralized decision making, because they think it's much more likely that people muddling through using established rules of thumb will hit on good answers, as opposed to having a whole bunch of people who care a lot getting together in a room and saying, let's start from scratch. And again, whenever you see that being proposed as a solution, you have to be uneasy about it. Uh, but this is, and this is why, because these people, they know they're better. In another book, Sowell called them the anointed. So they don't worry too much about practical failures. They just know that they're, they're the best people. And if they were put in charge, everything would turn out right. And the people who don't want them to be in charge don't want things to turn out right. And that's why the rhetoric gets so ugly so quickly on so many policy issues, because the people on the left are convinced, it's not a trick, it's genuine conviction, but mistaken, that people who disagree with them have bad motives. And you don't really discuss with people like that. You just have to crush them and get them out of the way so that you can build the new Jerusalem. I'm curious about this expert thing. And maybe the, the issue of compassion may help explain it. So you take like the Biden plan, plan, so to speak. So if you think about, okay, how do you produce energy cost effectively? So I include, I include like low cost, you know, on demand, all kinds of different machines, billions of people in thousands of places. Like who are the experts on that? Well, it's energy producers, right? Like they know how to do it. Particularly the fossil fuel industry is the only industry that's figured out how to do cost effective energy on a global scale. And yet like there's all this supposed worship of expertise, but it, when it comes to planning energy, like who's in charge of it? I mean, it's even like the idea is, okay, Joe Biden and his administration will sort of come up with something. They don't even really tout any expertise in energy, as far as I can tell. It really does seem like just, oh, we really care. We want to, quote, stop climate change. And so we're going to throw a lot of money at it. But it, it's odd to me that it has no tinge of expert uh, at all. What's what's your, it doesn't seem like they're respecting expertise, whereas they do seem to respect expertise or fake it when it's like the experts tell us that we need to be in power. But it's like once we're in power, we just do whatever the hell we want and we ignore the fact that free people actually producing things are the real experts who improve our lives. Yeah, and, and again, I would point to Sowell's book here because I think that what they mean by expert is not the same as what you mean by expert. Mm. Uh, we, you or I would think of experts as people with a great deal of practical experience in doing things that actually worked, that they have learned in the school of hard knocks what sorts of things will lead to disaster, what sorts of things will keep you reasonably warm and dry and safe. But they're experts are a very different group of people and they are basically the ones who say you must seize power in this crisis um and again this is a pattern that you've seen so many times and you reminded me when you talk about the, the people whose predictions have failed on things like ecology look at the people who were making assessments about the soviet economy into the 1980s people particularly infamously paul samuelson the author of the you know, best-selling American college textbook on economics, and John Kenneth Galbraith, darling of the elite, uh, they both said the Soviet economy works as well as the American economy, possibly better. And this was such a misread, and it blew up in their faces so spectacular that you would have thought this would do some damage to their reputations, but it really didn't, uh, because their, their reputations were not built on that kind of expertise. You know, a la Princess Bride, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. It's this expertise in designing systems where the best make decisions driven by compassion. And again, all these people saying, oh, yes, you know, we know alternative energy works. And it's not even as though they'd ever run a wind farm. 
never mind, you know, invented something from scratch. Uh, but they read something in the New York Times by somebody saying experts say, and so they, they're very much in an echo chamber. And since they think that people who don't agree with them are malevolent, they don't let them into the discussion, at least they try not to. And then all they hear from is people who agree with them. Uh, again, William F. Buckley had, had that quip about liberals are always talking about hearing po other points of view, but they're always astonished and frequently offended to find that there are other points of view. And I think this is one of the major reasons why that they're just so certain that all you need is love. And they, when you say, no, wait a minute, it's not that simple. And, and again, I remember going back to the Cold War, the two battling bumper stickers that I think underline these different ways of thinking very well. On the left, they had visualize world peace, which wasn't about methods. It was about your heart being filled with love. And on the right, we had bumper stickers that said peace through strength, which is a method. And it's a method for an imperfect world. And when you're not even agreeing whether the world is an imperfect place, it's very, very hard to have a productive discussion about the details. I find that really interesting, this point you're making about expert doesn't mean the same thing to me as it means to them. That that maps that maps to a lot. I mean, I've had this, this relates to a thought I've had for years. And I first had it with Paul Krugman, or I guess it's Krugman, the economist. And I just thought, you know what? This guy serves such a role for anti-capitalists because it's somebody who has the prestige of economists. And he's basically saying, you don't need capitalism to have a good economy. In fact, the more control, the more wealth transfer, the better. And it's like he had this perfect market niche of the person who's against capitalism, against freedom, but seems to know how society can work in spite of that. And in energy, you probably heard of this guy, uh, Mark Jacobson from Stanford, who's, I don't even know what he is. He's like some sort of environmental scientist, not an economist, but he's the one who's conjured up these plan, so-called plans of here's how we can just use wind, uh, solar, and water to power everything, and we can do it more cheaply. And I mean, he's been, even by a lot of the catastrophist economists, he's been just like systematically refuted and he sued people and kind of like Michael Mann does. But I think he's even worse in than Michael Mann in terms of actually would probably sue me for saying that, but love to debate these things with him. But it's interesting, like he just, almost nobody agrees with this guy, but he's trotted out by the media as, oh, this is the expert in energy. And it just shows that, or Amory Lovins is a good example from the 70s, this guy who claimed that we could have a mostly solar economy soon in 1976. And it's just like, it's not at all that they're actually the people who know how to make anything work. It's really that they're people who are aligned in terms of their values and assumptions. And people say, oh, this is somebody like me. This is somebody who wants the same things. This is somebody who believes the same things. And they're saying what I want to hear. Is that, do you think that's accurate? And so they must be right. I hear yeah. the voice of enlightenment and it sounds so much like my own that I trust this person. And in fact, one thing, I mean, being a working journalist among many other odd uh, aspects of my life, when you're reading a news story and then they quote some professor, you think, oh, professor, cool, that person's got a PhD. But, you know, look at, look, who is this person? What is their institutional affiliation? And why did this journalist call that particular person? There are tens of thousands of professors they could have called. And the reason is, isn't that everybody knows this person is the expert. It's because they sort of did a Google search and found somebody who seemed to be saying what they wanted to hear for their news story. Uh, and it doesn't make the person a greater idiot or smarter. It's just that there's this very selective use of sources that is disguised as experts say. 
And again, I, I'm, perhaps it is an unfair jibe at any individual person, but when someone says, look, we can power the whole economy off uh, solar, I'd like to say, gee, you know what? I have to replace the heating element in my water tank. Do you think you could do that for me? And maybe you could, but uh, very often you're getting these extraordinary schemes for saving the world from people who could not, in fact, take apart and put together a fairly simple electric device. Uh, and I'm reminded too of Jordan Peterson, this, his thing about if you really want to get things in order, don't start by saving the world, start by cleaning up your room. And once you've cleaned up your room, you may have developed some skills that might be applicable on a slightly larger scale. And eventually we can work our way up to world peace. But, and again, if you look at you know political parties, especially on the left where they have their conventions and they say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to eliminate poverty and racism before lunch. And after lunch, we're going to get rid of world peace and fix the weather. And then you know tomorrow we'll find something even more impressive to do. As though nobody had been worried about these things before they came along. Uh, nobody had ever thought of fixing these things. And again, to me as, as a historian, but also as a, as a conservative, when you don't know it's been tried and failed, you're the last person who ought to be allowed to try it again. If you knew it had been tried and failed, maybe you'd have some intelligent opinion on what had been done wrong last time. But when basically you just don't know, when you don't know that the Romans said, if you want peace, prepare for war, uh, then you have absolutely no idea why unilateral disarmament might be a bad idea. And again, it's extraordinary how many experts were telling us in the 1970s and 1980s that with the Soviets building up a huge nuclear arsenal and pushing hard in various parts of the world, we needed to throw away our own weapons in order to avoid a war. And again, it was so frustrating. I'd say, well, when did that plan ever work? But that wasn't how they thought about it. It wasn't when did it ever work? It was how much do we want it to work this time? And the expert is the person who really wants solar to work this time. So unfortunately, unfortunately sounds very accurate. Well, so speaking of solar, let me, I'll just have you introduce it and then I'll, I'll go into some depth. Tell us about the outline of your recent interview of China, uh, not interview, rather your recent video on China. So people should check out Climate Discussion Nexus, particularly on YouTube. And I forget exactly the title, something about red, green, but yeah, give us the an red, overview. red, green menace, we call it. I mean, red, green menace. Yeah. So I'd like you to give an overview and then I want to drill down into some aspects of it. You know, that was in the don't mince words, bones, what do you really think <laughs> category. Uh, and essentially, the genesis of this was a colleague of mine saying, you know, it's a funny thing that there are two visions of the world in the middle of the 21st century. And one of them is this net zero vision where the West has given up its fossil fuels. And the other one is the Chinese Communist Party vision that they will have become the dominant world power by 2049. And from 2050 on, they will start imposing their views and their way of life on the rest of the world. And although the two seem to be disconnected, they actually fit together very neatly because getting rid of fossil fuels will of course cripple the West. It will cripple us economically. It will cripple us militarily. It will leave us weak and helpless and demoralized. And China is certainly not getting rid of fossil fuels. And we thought, it's not, I don't believe in conspiracy theories. I've seen far too much of human affairs, again, the virtue of being a historian, to believe that we're capable of conspiring. Human beings aren't even very good at doing what they're allowed to be doing. The idea that a bunch of them are very slickly doing something completely different and managing to hide it all in such a way that, that no loose ends ever poke out seems to me to be, again, it reminds me of that line from Shanghai Noon where, um, uh, Wyatt Earp asked Chun Wen, what in our history together makes you believe I'm capable of something like that? 
But the thing is that the Chinese communist plan to take over the world isn't a plot. It's just a plan. They're quite open about it. Uh, they they make no secret of it. And they pretend they're going to get rid of uh, fossil fuels and lots of Western environmentalists go, hey, look, Xi Jinping said he was going to do it. But they just keep building coal plants. And so Which are supposed to last 40 years. These are not coal plants are not like a, it's not like a two year thing. No, they, it's perfectly obvious what they're up to. And they're playing us for fools. And, uh, and again, we've seen this movie before. There was a line from Vladimir Bukovsky, a Soviet dissident, who commented that Western liberals were like the backward dog of Russian folklore that wagged their tail at strangers and barked at their own family. And so we thought we really need to sound the alarm on this and say, you know what, if the Western environmentalists get what they want and the Chinese communists get what they want, uh, the world in 2050 is going to be a very unpleasant place. And it does not make sense for people who claim that climate change, man-made climate change is the existential crisis of our time to ignore the fact that China is the world's leading emitter of greenhouse gases and shows no sign of reining them in. They ought to be incensed about that. And if they're not, they are, again, I don't believe they're in, it's a conspiracy, but they are very much Lenin's useful idiots. And when he said that, he didn't mean useful to their own society. Yeah, I mean, it, it is one of these useful, I mean, my kind of joke about it in my head is it's like the Chinese must be thinking like, like you, like two kinds of idiots. There's like US full idiots and EU's full idiots, right? Like from the US and the EU. And I mean, it's just, yeah, if you want to take over the world and the other side says, yeah, let's stop the thing that powers our whole civilization, including our military, it's just a total... Uh, I mean, it's just, it's a terrifying uh, prospect to see. Uh, one thing I'd like you to talk about is the, the Belt and Road Initiative, because I think this is really revealing of what, and I would just put it in the context of the West or the free world is generally discouraging, not even discouraging, forbidding or opposing fossil fuel projects. So in that context, tell us about the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the Politburo is trying to tie the world together with uh, red ribbons that all lead back to Beijing. And part of it is building this massive infrastructure, uh, transport infrastructure, and trying to, to buy a great deal of the world's transport infrastructure. But also, you have, again, this strange coincidence that just at a time when Western banks and the international financial institutions dominated by Western governments are refusing to lend to poor countries to build fossil fuel plants, the Chinese show up with a suitcase full of money and say, hey, we'll help you out. And what, what is so odd about this, as was so odd again in our dealings with the Soviet Union, is that the same people who would absolutely swoon in horror if uh, the American government was helping finance coal plants, aren't bothered that the Chinese government is trying to do it. And again, when, when you think about the, the absurdity of the situation, one imagines within the, the Politburo and the Central Committee and the discussions where people come and say, hey, we've got this great plan, we'll get the West to get rid of their fossil fuels. And more sober-minded people say, oh, come on, they couldn't possibly be that stupid. And then they're told, well, let's give it a try and see what happens. But uh, it's important to bear in mind that we won the Cold War because our enemies were even stupider than we were. And one should not assume that the Chinese Politburo are masterminds. They're clever and they're determined and they're absolutely ruthless, but they're also capable of making horrendous gaffes. And uh, the Belt and Road Initiative may well uh, drive their own government to the brink of insolvency. So uh, they could do themselves in while we're trying to do ourselves in and they might beat us to it. But just in case they don't, we really should take this seriously, that they have a plan to take over world commerce and take over world finance. And by 2049, part of the plan is that their military will be twice the size of the American military. 
And it, one of the things that we mentioned in the video, and I don't know why this doesn't bother more people, is that, you know, you think of countries as having military establishments of various sorts, formidable or laughable, but China doesn't have a military. The People's Liberation Army, which is the entire Chinese military, including Air Force, Navy and rocket forces, is a branch of the Communist Party. And if the American military were a branch of the Republican Party, I think my Canadians and many others would point to this as an obvious sign of monstrous evil in the world. Uh, but when the, the People's Liberation Army is a branch of the Chinese Communist Party, and it's the biggest military in the world, and they overtly plan to make it much bigger, and it's very pushy, and they're building a blue water navy, and all these kinds of things are going on. And, and the people who are in the peace movement, or so the so-called peace movement, just don't it doesn't upset them at all. It's not that they don't say anything. They don't want to say anything. And uh, and that, to me, is, is a sign of a familiar but very dangerous kind of thinking. And again, I'm not saying it's conspiracy. It's not like they're Chinese Communist Party moles. I mean, there's a few. And of course, the CCP does spread money around, and uh, it uses other less savory methods, including honey traps. Uh, but the main thing is that these people, that what the most disastrous force in human affairs is misplaced sincerity. And uh, there's a huge amount of it loose. And we just need to get people to notice where it's going to take us if we don't uh, reverse course on some of this stuff. Either the Chinese get rid of their fossil fuels, which is definitely to me the second best solution, or we stop getting rid of our own because they're not causing a global crisis. They just aren't. Yeah, I mean, they're causing unprecedented global human flourishing. And I mean, I don't, I don't really hope, I don't hope the Chinese get rid of their fossil fuels. I mean, you look at just individual people living lives that are 10 years longer than they were, uh, many decades ago. I mean, that's, that's great, but it's, it's, it's terrifying to me that it's really the unfree world is doubling down on fossil fuels. And then the free world is, you know, is, is cracking down and abandoning them. One other, one other thing that terrifies me is I think there's a very real sense in which China has more economic freedom than the U S and particularly if you look at the freedom to develop in terms of, you think of it as like the freedom to actually develop land and have things done. You know, the Chinese people talk about how the Chinese government can make, they can build like a subway station really quickly, or they can build a skyscraper really quickly. And in the U S we used to be able to, even with primitive technology, you know, we could build the empire state building in a year and two months, but now you cannot do that at all. So essentially nobody in the U S is as remotely as free to take action on a piece of property and develop it as the Chinese government. And so that combined with them stealing all sorts of our intellectual property is terrifying to me because they're just, they can actually develop and we can't. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it is, it's a terrifying prospect. Although if they had a proper understanding of themselves and, and tyrannies don't, they'd be terrified too, because of course, like the Soviet government, uh, I mean, for governments to be free, isn't quite the right word. They are, uh, unconstrained uh, by rules of individual liberty and property rights. And so they can perpetuate and are perpetuating a gigantic tragedy of the commons. If China were a self-governing democracy, the citizens would be objecting to the pollution that was being caused, not the carbon dioxide, the real pollution that makes the city air hard to breathe and so forth. And the Chinese government wouldn't be able to just trash the environment, nor would it be able to force people to work for subsistence wages in order to sells cheap goods abroad. I mean, it really is the old Huxter's joke, right? They lose money on every sale, but they make up for it in volume. They're actually hard 
hollowing out their own society in this ataxic lunge for world domination. And the result of it will be to collapse China. The question is merely whether they fall on us and cause us huge damage in the process. Tyrannies are very brittle, and they're very brittle because they don't have good information. Now, I, I believe that in the West, we've carried things far too far. And the limitations on development of property and so on are not driven by respect for the property rights of others, including in clean air and clean water. It's an Alan Ronald Coase. But um, the, the Chinese have gone too far the other way. And one of the things about the Soviet Union that was very odd was that during the Cold War, environmentalists said capitalism causes pollution and they didn't look behind the Iron Curtain. But when the Berlin Wall finally fell, we discovered that the Soviet Union was an 11 times zone toxic waste dump, that their government had done appalling things to the air, to the water. Uh, I know worked with somebody who'd grown up in the Soviet Union, and he said that in the city where he grew up, the sky was every color but blue. And you'd frequently come out in the morning and find two inches of fresh powder on the sidewalk, but it wasn't snow. Uh, and the Chinese are doing the same, the Chinese government is doing the same thing to its own people. Uh, but in the short run, it does create an enormous amount of what looks like power and the instruments of power. And so it's very dangerous. And what's especially dangerous is a regime that is optimistic about the short run, but pessimistic about the long run. And if the Politburo has any sense of the real weaknesses in its position, then they need to complete this plan for world conquest quickly, because over the long term, demographically and in other ways, they're, they're not looking good. All of this makes them a very dangerous adversary. And again, of course, I'm talking about the Chinese government. I'm not talking about the Chinese people uh, who are the oppressed victims of this monstrous tyranny and are suffering terribly under it. But there's not much we can do about them unless we first save ourselves, which we need to make a point of doing. And we need to start. And again, that was bringing me back to the video. The first thing is to recognize that the threat is real. Because, you know, the airplane two solution where you ignore it and hope it's gone in the morning is not something that adults adopt. And the Chinese threat is real. The Canadian government is being pathetically slow to recognize this. It's a mystifying thing to watch. Even I think President Biden seems to have a much better sense of the danger that China, the Chinese Communist Party poses than uh, Canada's Prime Minister Trudeau. He is just, he is a that's, babe in the woods that, on this that, one. That's, that's saying something. In terms of making people aware of this, where can we find like good official documentation? You mentioned the Chinese uh, Communist Party is open about these things. I would love to have a source that just really said in, you know, documented where they're saying it or where it's explicit or where there's clear evidence. I feel like that, that you know, if, if that were put together, it could be a viral thing because it, it wouldn't just be us drawing implications or saying that they said it would just be this is documented. What, what can you recommend in terms of resources like that? Well, one of the books that I think is very good is The Hidden Hand. Um, which we talk about in our uh, in the video. I mean, it sounds like a kind of a, a conspiratorial title, but it's just about the Chinese Communist Party's effort to reshape the world and cultivate agents of influence and this kind of thing. Uh, and then there's also a book called The Hundred Year Marathon, which is about this plan that by the 100th anniversary of Mao's bloody revolution, China will be the dominant world power, which curious enough, the Chinese leadership has this rather bigoted and sort of, you know, um, anti-multicultural view that, of course, China's meant to rule the world because we're China. We always ruled the world, except when those rotten Westerners foiled us in the 19th century using some form of trickery we've never properly understood. Um, and so those two books go a long way toward documenting it. And there's a think tank here in Canada, the McDonald Laurier Institute, um, that is both a free market and a national security oriented organization, which is a slightly unusual combination, but they've also done some very good work on China.
And I think that if you start by looking at those books uh, and then you move on to look at the sources they cite and to look up things like the infamous document number nine, uh, which clearly has the approval of Xi Jinping and talks about the, the seven things that must, ideas that must be stamped out. And these are, you know, human rights and a free press and anybody criticizing Mao Zedong and anyone criticizing Xi Jinping and this kind of stuff. You realize that they're not secretly planning to take over the world and impose tyranny. They're quite openly planning to do it. And again, the historian says, we thought we learned this lesson after the Second World War, when it was all over and we discovered everything, including the Holocaust, we said, oh, we should have read Mein Kampf. We should have taken it seriously. And yet when it happens again, we once again are like, oh, it's just for domestic consumption or, you know, never mind that rhetoric or ha ha, how those communists do talk. And again, I'd say that if you could corner uh, our prime minister and say to him, do you think Xi Jinping is a communist? My guess is that he would refuse to acknowledge that he was one. And of course, our prime minister, before he uh, assumed that office, he was asked by in a gathering of women voters what government in the world he admired. And he said he admired the Chinese dictatorship because they could turn on a dime and green their economy. And, you know, somebody who could think that as an adult, I was going to say a mature adult, but perhaps that would be uh, putting it a little too strongly. If somebody would think that when they're in their 40s is not likely to have a sudden epiphany. Um, but it, it's okay if the useful idiots stay idiotic as long as the populace wakes up. Uh, you know, the American elite's sympathetic view of the Soviet Union in the early stages of the Cold War was only dangerous until the public turned against it. And after that, it was pretty much uh, deprived of its power to do harm. Um, but the same thing is true here. If people recognize the true nature of China, the political system of Western countries will respond to it, I think. So it's up to us. And again, I think those two books, The Hidden Hand and The Hundred Year Marathon, are a very good place to start. Great. One other aspect of this that I haven't studied at all systematically, so it'd be great to have a summary from you, is just if you could summarize what's happening with the Chinese government in the corporate world. I mean, I've, you know, of course, you've seen what happens with the NBA and then there are different controversies about, you know, American tech companies selling stuff. Is there anything just broad based you can say about problems with how American corporations are dealing with the Chinese government? Well, <laughs> uh, yes, I would. So there are so many and sort of naivete is one of them and venality is another one. You know, I mean, basketball is afraid of losing the revenue from the Chinese market. And you'd think to yourself, surely there is more to life than money. And if, they, if you get them on domestic issues, they'd claim to believe it. Well, let's get them to believe it on foreign policy. Um, and I think there's a great deal of naivete. People don't understand that every Chinese company is a branch of the Chinese Communist Party. It doesn't even matter what it says on paper. If, you know, ask Jack Ma what happens if you know Xi Jinping. There's no such thing as individual rights. There's no property rights. There's no sanctity of contract. There's nothing like that in China. But again, one of the things that I think is so important, and I find this very frustrating myself because I'm increasingly trying to buy things that aren't made in China, but it's really, really hard. Hard. And now they have these sort of front companies who will say, well, designed in Canada, made in China. But actually purchasing a product, even something as ridiculous as a, a little um, ball feeder for a cat so that your cat has to work to get the kibble out and won't overeat because they're bored. And this is, I just bought one. And sure enough, I looked in the package, made in China. Why is that made in China? Why is your life jacket made in China? And if consumers wake up, I think that will help wake up the companies and, and the financial companies, the idea that you would uh, plunge into the Chinese market and not understand that you're placing, you're making yourself a hostage. What a crazy thing to do. 
So again, it would help if corporate executives would read Witness by Whitaker Chambers or something like that. But if they won't, again, we can get their attention by saying we will not be compromised. You know, Disney, which is also hyper woke about uh, things that happen in North America, but then is willing to film where China is committing what many people think is a genocide against the Uyghur Muslims. Uh, if people said, well, we're not going to watch Disney movies if they're dripping blood or words to that effect, I think you might find that Disney's naivete evaporated in the face of its covetousness. The woke thing is so interesting. I'm wondering, I want to know either of this, like, is there a way to get at least a large part of that phenomenon against what China's doing? I mean, you think about just what even the, look at the last couple of years with coronavirus, in the handling of that, uh, just in terms of oppression, all of these different things. I mean, I, I think there are reasons why the woke crowd doesn't oppose China, but do you think there's any way to bring these things to atten- to people's attention? So in any way that, like, what about Chinese lives matter? Why isn't it, and, and even, you know, the people in, in the US, it, like the latest fad has become, oh, we suddenly care about Asian Americans, like who are massively discriminated against racially, by the way. Um, you know, in all of our institutions, we don't care about that. We don't care about many kinds of inner city violence against Asian Americans. But like, if you care about everyone, including Asians, what about a billion Asians who are oppressed by the Chinese government? Do you think there's any chance of getting certain? I, I think a lot of people can get on board. But in terms of what we could call the woke crowd, do you think there's any way they could get into that? Well, I suppose some of them can, right? One always welcomes home the prodigal son, but it's not where I would concentrate my efforts because, again, uh, anti-communism was always regarded as uncool amongst the set who are now woke, but the populace understood the true nature of communism. And one of the funny things, if you may remember, with the, the crackdown on solidarity in Poland, and that had a lot of leftists um suddenly wearing buttons saying support our unions east and west and some conservatives doing so which perhaps was not utterly sincere but uh, certainly did succeed in making the point but again i think that here the common sense of the common people is what we want to rely on and if we can drag the professoriate and the political class along great but if it becomes politically untenable to take a soft line on china then it won't matter that the usual suspects are still babbling on and, you know, I've noticed this in particular, I get a couple of American news feeds and, and NBC in particular every day tells me America's a racist hellhole. You know, and I'm almost old enough to remember the assassination of Martin Luther King. I have a very clear idea of how bad the racial situation in the United States used to be. And I know how much better it is today. And I think most Americans, and I don't just mean most white Americans, I think most Americans understand that. And so I think to some extent that movement will burn itself out. But this is how free societies work. They look at their own failings. They try to deal with them. They blunder in this direction and that direction. They overreact. They panic. But then a diversity of voices is brought to bear in the situation. And I think that... If you trust the common people to be sensible and have perspective about their own country, then I think you can also trust them to have common sense and perspective on other countries. And, you know, the Chinese government, uh, well, the Communist Party, is going to keep doing stuff that makes them look bad. Remember, the Soviets were like that, too. Just when they were really, really making progress on the peace movement, they shot down KAL-007. Um, they had the Chernobyl reactor erupt. They routinely did awful things because they were an awful regime. And I, I think that the, the Chinese uh, Communist party may well invade Taiwan at some point soon and be surprised when people are upset. Uh, But I think, again, at some point you stop overthinking the consequences and you say to yourself, again, a Jordan Peterson thing, just never tell a lie. Speak the truth. uh, And as the apostle Peter said, you know, speak it 
pleasantly, but fearlessly and say, well, this is the way I see things and this is why I see them that way. And believe that the truth will prevail. Uh, the free societies have defeated tyrannies one after another over the last 500 years, often against absurdly long odds. And I'm convinced that we can do it again, provided we are true to ourselves. So, you know, I'm not optimistic. I think optimism is a psychological condition and a fatuous one, but I'm hopeful. And that's a theological virtue and one well worth holding on to and making sure that we are not afraid to tell the truth, that we don't look over our shoulders, that we don't try and calculate our advantage that we just say, when it is all said and done, I will be somebody who told the truth and stood up for what I knew was right. I like that. Uh, before we wrap up, I want to ask just a little bit about Canada. So, you know, I, I, um, in 2013 and 2014 in particular, I spent a lot of time in Canada. Uh, that was as I was starting to become known as a commentator on these issues. And it's been really sad to see just from here how much opposition there's been to development of resources in Canada. Is there anything we can learn from Canada in the U.S. in terms of what anti-development policies there have wrought that we may be on the verge of doing ourselves here in the U.S.? Well, I'm tempted to say you can learn that human beings don't want to be happy, because if, if we can't make a success of Canada, uh, it seems to me that we can't make a success of much of anything. But yeah, I, I think that there are things to be aware of. And one of them is the uh, the maze that's all, you know, all maize and no cheese, that the development approval process in Canada, you never get the project approved. And even if you do, it's, uh, it's turned into that old joke about Russia, that even uh, if something is permitted, it is forbidden. Uh, and we are tearing ourselves apart on regional lines. We are destroying our economy and we have placed power in the hands of fools, many of whom have never had a real job. And if you do that, you're going to pay a very heavy price. You need to understand. I mean, your book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, I think is a very important one. Of course, if it were true that fossil fuels had done all these good things, but we're going to set the planet on fire, uh, we'd still have to get rid of them. And when I talk about telling the truth, people in the Canadian energy industry will not stand up to the so-called science on global warming. There are commendable exceptions, but for the most part, they're trying to rally around the white flag. And I will tell you that won't work. To concede that your opponents are right, that fossil fuels are destroying the planet and then try to continue to produce them is, a, is a, such a terrible plan, it would baffle Blackadder. And so don't do that. Don't say, yes, you're right, but think of the money we'll make or think of the jobs. You need to be willing to say no. This idea that carbon dioxide drives temperature and that it is pushing us toward a cliff is not intellectually sound. The evidence isn't there. It's not logical. The claims are contradictory and just a whole bunch of nonsense has been spoken on that subject. You must, again, be willing to speak the truth as you see it. Uh, don't get too clever by half. So I think it's very important not to say, yes, the alarmists are right, but no, we shouldn't do anything because, because at that point you've lost the audience. They think you're either a fool or a knave and possibly both. And that is, you know, one of my rules of public policy. If people think you're a clown, don't show up in a fright wig. Um, do not agree with the alarmists and think that will buy you credibility with the alarmists, because the only thing that follows from that is that you then have to adopt their recommendations. So stand on the science if you want to fight on the policy. Yeah, I think in particular, and you know, just this, there's a distinction between like climate impact and climate catastrophe or, cata, you know, catastrophic climate impact. And just the idea that catastrophic climate impact is scientific is just completely bizarre. If you look at the actual evidence, if, I mean, it's just, I mean, I would put it as, I think the science is completely settled that there's no chance of a climate catastrophe because human beings are so adaptive and because the changes that we're talking about are just so with, well within our range 
of, of dealing with. And, and, you know, one point someone was making to me is that if you look at, I call it our climate mastery abilities, like the, why doesn't the energy industry ever talk about that and how, how much safer we are from climate? They also don't talk about, I think I encourage some to talk about clean water, but it's people think of it as all we do to water, all we do to climate, all we do to resources is make them worse. Whereas actually fossil fuels power all the machines that make us safer from climate, that make our water clean, that make resources abundant. And yet the industry barely talks about that at all. One notable exception, I don't know if you saw this North Face controversy, but the CEO from the US, Adam Anderson of this company, Innovex, and he fortunately cited moral case for fossil fuels in, in some of his public statements about this. Like he just said explicitly, like we're making the world a better place. I don't believe in climate catastrophe. I believe we have some impact, but it's not catastrophic. We're adaptable. And the North Face had nothing to say. They, they, they would and it's, it's gotten tons of attention. They just won't say anything. And you just see, wow, somebody confidently stands up, doesn't concede catastrophism. And guess what? Nobody has anything to say. Yeah, and again, I, I've mentioned Jordan Peterson a couple of times, not on climate, but Jordan Peterson stood up and said what millions of people were thinking about coerced speech, and he became a hero and also a millionaire. And I think when, if, if the fossil fuel companies and just ordinary people are going to say, no, we don't believe a climate catastrophe is coming. We don't believe that CO2 is going to cause a disaster. But if you say that, you're going to be challenged for the most part, and you're going to have to be willing to back it up. So again, plug for the climate discussion nexus. We have covered this from any number of angles in order to give people the information they need and the reasoning to be confident in speaking out and saying, we know what CO2 has done in the past. We know what temperature has done in the past. We know that there's very little correlation between them. We know that a world that is warmer is not inhospitable to life. We know that virtually every significant claim made by the alarmist is wrong, and most of them are actually quite silly. So let's stop talking that way. And to the extent that, yes, maybe the world is warming naturally or uh, through human influence or some combination, and maybe warming has some negative consequences, but it also has a lot of very positive ones. The world is greening. People are growing more food in places where starvation used to be a nightmare well into the late 20th century. All kinds of good things are happening. And with the ability to move things around at or near the surface of the earth that reliable, affordable energy gives us, we can deal with the bad stuff and take advantage of the good stuff. And for that, you do have to be willing to deal with the claim that, no, the seas are going to rise six feet and we're all going to die and everybody's going to get some fungal disease and the poison ivy will get bigger and itchier. And it's incredible stuff that you do find people saying all the time. And sometimes you have to deal with it with a smile uh, as well as with an indignant word. But yeah, we, we do need, we, we don't want to be on the defensive in a position where there's no need to be on the defensive. It makes you look like you have a guilty secret and you look furtive and harried and greedy. And again, that's the fright way. You just don't want to appear in public with that on. And there's no need for it. If people in the fossil fuel industry really think their products destroying the earth, they should get into a different business. And if they don't think so, they should stand up for what they do, for the way in which they build communities, for the way in which they don't just get money for their family, they heat the homes of the poor. They save lives. I mean, you look at how many people die in natural disasters in a wealthy country versus the number who die in a poor country, and you see how important it is to be able to react, to have the resources, the reserves, the capacity to rescue people when the weather turns nasty. And again, I'm reading a book called The Little Ice Age by a guy who's he's all in on global warming, 2000 version. But at the same time, he says, you know, when the medieval warm period ended, the Little Ice Age brought terrible weather and it brought disasters. And in fact, it seems that the, even he thinks the weather is better when it's warm. But 
there it has always been bad weather. It's not like we invented bad weather, but when there's bad weather, if nobody's got food to spare, nobody can transport, nobody can rush in with construction to build dikes and you know evacuate people and all the kinds of things that we can do in wealthy countries, then there will be mass death. And we should be talking about this. We should be talking about the importance of having enough to eat. We should be talking about the deaths from cold as fuel prices rise and saying, all of these are terrible side effects of this paranoia about CO2. They're not even necessary costs because the problem is not big if it exists at all. And I'm not certain that it does, but the cost of implementing all these measures, even if the Chinese weren't trying to take over the world, the Chinese communists would still be vastly disproportionate. We'd be sacrificing so many benefits for such minimal gain, if any. And so it's also unnecessary, but for that, we have to stand up and say, no, you're wrong about this catastrophe that you say is coming. You're wrong about the settled science. You're wrong about the impact of CO2. You're wrong that the historical record shows that CO2 drives temperature. You're wrong about everything. And you're confused when you say there's a 97% consensus. You don't understand the statistical basis of it. And you're just not talking sense. And we're going to talk sense here and be practical and solve problems one at a time as they arise the way we've always done. I like it. And I really like the, the, the message to the fossil fuel industry that like, it's just suicidal to conceive, to concede climate catastrophe. And if you do that, just your whole position is shot. Your credibility is shot. All your solutions are completely implausible. That's one thing I notice. Like if you look at some of these trade groups, when they have solutions, it's like, yeah, they're saying, oh, we yeah, we have a climate crisis. We agree with that, but let's still keep drilling. Let's keep, like, it makes no sense. Or like, let's invest in carbon capture for some distance. Like, people will say, yeah, you're not sincere. Like, we need to crash everything. And uh, they, so, yeah, just, there's no reason to do that. And you shouldn't be in the industry if you think it's a catastrophe, so. Yeah, I should say, it's a line from Spike Milligan about rallying around the white flag, but it's, it's, it's absolutely the wrong plan. It can never work. You know, if you're gonna surrender, mean it. And if you're not gonna surrender, fight. Fight for what you know is right. Fight for what you know is good. Have the courage of your convictions and speak clearly and honestly. Put a smile on your face, but, you know, suaviter and moto, fortiter and re. Be smooth in manner, but firm on the substance. Well, I'm really glad you're out there speaking about what you think is right. Where can people learn more about you? And also, um, I assume Climate Discussion Nexus people can donate to. Is that true? Oh, yes, we are. Uh, we're crowdfunded. I keep getting told that we're getting billions from the Koch brothers, but no one told the Koch brothers. So the website is climatediscussionnexus.com and it has a donate button. There's a free newsletter and look for us on YouTube or Climate DN. We're also on Rumble just in case. Um, and, and our website has all the videos and the links to everything. So again, climatediscussionnexus.com will take you to a wealth of material, what you need to know in order to enter into this debate and not get bullied or shouted down and help the truth prevail and send us money. All right. Just donate button. Do, do, do all of those, everyone. Thanks so much, John. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks again to John Robson for coming on the show. I really... Uh, I highly recommend his work, checking out Climate Discussion Nexus. As I said at the outset, I think he's unusually precise and diligent on these issues. And I also admire his passion and his insistence on saying what he thinks is true and just see, you know, doing that to the best of his ability and seeing what comes of it. I think that's an admirable approach. Uh, next week, I want to preview the episode, we have Steve Coonan on. So Steve Coonan was a high-level member of the Obama um, Energy Department 
and he's a very well-respected physicist, and he has a new book on climate science and climate politics called Unsettled. And I think this is maybe the best book overall on these issues in terms of really explaining what's known, what's not known with precision and really giving all the evidence. It's, it's very impressive. I, I've been halfway through it, but I can tell like it's, it's, it, there's, there's a lot of really good stuff uh, there. So very excited to have him on. It's going to be the week of Earth Day um, at the same time uh, as as Earth Day. Uh, I, let's see, on, Earth, on the day after Earth Day, I'm going to be doing a climate panel on Dave Rubin, which should be exciting. And then I also have a live event with Patrick Moore, co-founder of Greenpeace that we're doing in Arizona, and I believe is being recorded. So looking forward to sharing that. Okay, that is it for this week. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Make sure to check out energytalkingpoints.com for talking points, also twitter.com slash alexepstein. And definitely make sure you're on the newsletter, which you, you can subscribe to at alexepsteinlist.com. If you like our work at the Center for Industrial Progress and you want to promote our research and development and promotional efforts, you can become an accelerator or become even more of an accelerator at industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. I am, let's see, I'm recording this on April 12th. I am in the middle of my latest editing cycle on the new book, Fossil Future. This cycle I'm going to be done with in early May, and that'll be probably the last big cycle. And it is slated to come out November 2nd. I don't think I've announced that yet. And it's not, I guess, officially publicly announced. So hopefully I don't get in too much trouble, but yes, very excited. Uh, about that. Good to see that on track. And I hope all of you enjoy it a lot. But uh, it'll be a little while, but you can look forward to having Steve Coonan next week. And we got some really great guests lined up in subsequent weeks. So I'll be back next week with Steve Coonan. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.